lot of traveling this year, and this is, I think, the first, as far as I know, vacation he's taken. So this, uh, what we're going to do over the next two weeks is we're going to look at sin. And I know that sin probably isn't an exciting, wonderful thing to look at, but <laughs> we're going to take a look at it. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at this week, and we're going to look at sin and us, what our response is to sin, what God's response is to sin. Next week, we're going to look at sin and other people, and how do we respond to the sin that's in other people's lives. So, what we want to look at today is what are we supposed to do after we sin? What is your natural tendency after you have sinned? What is it that you normally do? We just want to kind of think about that. And we're going to look at Psalms 51 today. Psalm 51 starts out with David, and he's saying, my sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before my eyes. And that's how this psalm starts out. But by the end of the psalm, he's saying, I will sing of your righteousness. And David goes from this sinning and this sorrow to this singing and this rejoicing. And we want to know what happens in the middle. We want to know what takes him from that sinning and that sorrow to that singing and rejoicing. And if we want to find a couple New Testament passages, what happens in between is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So we're going to follow David, and we're going to see how this works out. David, uh, well, let's pray first, actually. Father God, we come before you now, and uh, we just thank you so much, uh, Lord. And we feel your presence already during the worship time, Lord. And much of the singing and much of the uh, uh, prayers that we've been led in, Lord, are already this message. And so you've already whet our appetite with this, Lord. You've already made our hearts start to think about this. So, Lord, I know that there's some here who struggle with sin and are like David. My sin is ever before me, Lord. And they're filled with sorrow. And they're filled with this depression, Lord. But we don't want to stay there. We want to get to the part which is we sing of your righteousness. Where we're filled with joy and we're rejoicing. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll be with us this morning, Lord. Let us understand what it is that David understood. Lord, do the work in our hearts that you did in David's heart, Lord. We pray this this morning. Amen. So, in the Old Testament, we have King David. King David, as the name implies, is a king. He's the king of Israel. He's known as the man after God's own heart. And he ends up sinning greatly, this man after God's own heart. But he has this prayer after he sins, and we see that he repents greatly as well. So, King David is a king, and this is later on in his career, and it's the springtime. It's the time when the, when the, uh, the kings usually lead their people out into battle. They go to war in the spring. But David, instead of going to war, stays home, and he sends Joab in his place to lead these armies. And so it's one afternoon, it's the middle of the day, and David's on his couch. And he gets off his couch, and he goes up to his rooftop. And he's looking down, and he sees this woman who's bathing. And he falls in love with her. Well, I don't know if he just shouldn't say he falls in love with her. But he sees her, and he wants to know more about her. So what he does is he sends his servants out to find out who is this woman. 
So they go back and they come back and they say this woman's name is Bathsheba and she's married. So David sends his servants out to get her and to bring her back to the temple. So they do. And David sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. So now David's worried about what's going to happen. And so he decides to hatch this plan to cover up his sin, to cover up what he had done so no one knew what would go on. So what he does is he sends a message to Joab, and he says, send Bathsheba's husband back. Um, His name is Uriah. And he says, uh, you know, send her husband back with news of the battle. He'll be the messenger, so I'll find out what's going on. So Uriah comes back. He gives him the news of the battle. And so he spends some time with David, and David says, you can go home, you know, to your, you know, to your wife and stuff. And Uriah leaves, but he doesn't go home. He doesn't go back to his wife. Instead, he stays with the guard, and he stays there all night long with the other guards who are standing, who are standing duty or in their, in their place. David finds out the next morning, and his whole plan is ruined. He's like, well, why didn't you go back to your wife? And he says, he says, Israel is at war. He says, Joab, my leader, is at war. All of my fellow soldiers are at war. They're sleeping out of tents. The Ark of the Covenant is with them out there. He said, there's no way I'm going to go home to my family. There's no way that I'm going to go home and sleep in my own bed with my wife when these are, when my soldiers are there. Uriah is an upright, upright person. So David's plan is foiled, so he has to come up with another plan. So he says, okay, he said, spend one more day here, and then I'll get a message you can send back to Joab. So Uriah spends the, the day. David invites him back to, the, uh, uh, to his place, the palace, and this time he gets him drunk. And he says, well, this will be great, because now he'll drunk, he'll have no inhibitions, and he'll go home. But Uriah doesn't do it. He stays that night with the guards. He's an upright person. He still doesn't feel that it's right to do. He said, as you live and as my soul lives, I will not do this thing. I will not go back and spend this time with my family when I should be at the battle. So David has to come up with another plan. Every plan that he's trying isn't working, but he's not about to give up. So he comes up with another plan. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take this message. I want you to go back to the battle with Joab. So he gets there, gives Joab the letter. Joab reads the letter. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to put Uriah at the front of the line. I want you to charge up close to the battle, closer than what you know you should be. And when the battle gets heaviest and the fighting gets the worst and it's the thickest, I want you to draw back. And I want Uriah to be the person standing in front. So he does it. Joab follows what the king says. And they go through and they draw back and Uriah's there, a sitting duck, and he's killed instantly. And David takes Bathsheba and makes her his wife. The Bible, in this understated way, says this. The thing that David did displeased the Lord. (laughs) Isn't that like the most understatement? Here's the king. He's in charge of everything. And he's totally, totally abusing every single power that he has available to him. And the Bible says it displeased the Lord. So God sends... Uh, Nathan, the prophet, to talk to David. And so they already have a relationship. He's the prophet. David's the king. And so he welcomes us in, and he's talking to him. And Nathan says, let me tell you a story. He says, there's two 
people. He says there's a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man has many flocks. He's got many herds of like sheep and goat, goats. And the, and the poor person has got one single lamb. And he brought this lamb to his house. And he raised it with his children as his child. And he gave it his own food. And he let the lamb drink out of his own cup. And he raised it. And he let it sleep with him. It was this friend. It was the family pet. So the rich man who has all the herds has a friend from out of town come, and they're going to have a supper for him. But he doesn't want to take any of his animals for the banquet. So he takes the poor man's one single lamb, and they eat it. David is outraged because he's the king, and he has the power to do something about this. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan looks at him and he says, you are that man. And he says, the Lord God of Israel said this, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives, and I've given you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that was too little, if that wasn't enough, I would have added to you as much as that and more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed them with the sword of the Ammonites. Can you imagine what that moment was like for David? When that guilt just struck home, when he just realizes what he did? So how do you think he responded to that? This is one of these stories. Lots of times we get these stories, and we don't really know how they responded. The Bible's kind of silent on this. But this is one case where the Bible tells us exactly what he did. And this is our text for this morning. It's Psalm 51. So if we want to read this, we're going to find out how a man after God's own heart who sins responds to his sins. So if you want to turn with me to Psalms chapter 51, we're going to read, the, read that chapter. Do have an overhead for this one? Here we go. The top says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore, restore to me the joy 
of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O Lord, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. What we're going to do is we're going to focus on three different aspects of this psalm today. Number one is our repentance. Number two is God's forgiveness. And number three is our response. So what I want to do with the first part about the repentance is I've got, I I want us to think about it like this. I want you to think that there's a target over here, like an archery target with like a bullseye. And David has given us six different arrows that we're going to shoot at the target. And these six different aspects of what repentance looks like, of what confession uh, looks like it. And so, you know, in these things, it's like we're going to try to hit the target is what we're going to do. Even if we don't get a bullseye, what we want in our lives is to hit the target. And so the first arrow that David gives us is this. We need to see our sin before we can confess it. We need to see our sin before we confess it. I know that sounds kind of basic and it sounds kind of funny, but how often do we deny our sin? You know, we're really good at denying our sin. And we can hide it from others. And lots of times we're very good at hiding it from ourselves. David thought that he hid it from others. In reality, he kind of was probably trying to hide it from himself as well. But we can't hide our sin forever. And we need to, to recognize our sin. This is one of the things that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit reveals our sin to it. Sometimes he does this internally where we just see it. And other times he does it through our outside circumstances. But sometimes, as in the case of David, he uses someone else to point out our sin to us. So in the case of David, right, God used Nathan. And and Nathan showed David in a very, very undeniable, clear way of his sin. David was guilty. There was absolutely no way that he could deny it. Right, but it, it it seems funny because it seems like he was almost taken, you know, blindsided by it. Like he had thought that he'd covered up so well, even from himself. And so he listens to this story, and his blood starts to boil, and he he senses this this injustice. He gets this righteous anger. He's you know so upset about what's going on. He sees this helpless person. He sees this evil oppressor, and he has compassion for him, and he wants this justice to be served. But Nathan says, you are that man. David's sin now, he says, is ever before me. And he can't seem to forget his sin. And every time he sees Bathsheba now, he remembers his sin. Every time he sees Nathan now, he remembers his sin. And when he closes his eyes in the still, silent darkness of the night, He remembers his sin. 
His sin is always there. Have you ever felt the weight of your sin like this, where your sin is always there? When it hits your stomach like a rock, when your head starts to spin as you think about it, you have to sit down. This is what happened to David. And so I'm going to jump ahead, but I just wanted to bring up this point right away that what do we do during those times? And we confess our sin. We cry out for mercy. We cry out for forgiveness. Because see, if you leave it as my sin is always before me, this is that, this is that, um, it's that worldly grief that leads to death. But we will have a godly grief that leads to repentance. And we cry out to God for mercy. And we confess our sins. So, number two, the second arrow that we're going to shoot at in this repentance, you must take full ownership of your sin. So it's not enough to recognize your sin, that you have sin, but you need to take the full ownership of what your sin is. David says, I know my transgressions, blot out my transgressions, cleanse me from my sin. See, confession is, confession is taking that full responsibility when you own them. You say, I have sin. And in this area, we need to be specific. When we're confessing our sins, we need to be specific. In that intro, David is very specific, right? This is a psalm of David. This is when Nathan came. This is after the sin with Bathsheba. And so he takes full ownership. And when he confesses, he confesses specific sins and not just vague general generalities. Third arrow of our understanding on this. This is found in verse 4. All sin is against God. All sin is against God. Verse 4 says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David says all sin is against God. Doesn't that seem odd that all sin would be against God, right? Because if I'm at work and I get mad at my boss and I punch him out, he's pretty sure that the sin is against him. <laughs> at no time does he say, well, that's obviously against God. He says, no, that's against me. It's very, very clear to him that it is. But you see... We have to think about this now and why he can say this because God said to David, do not commit adultery. David committed adultery. Who did he disobey? He disobeyed God. God said, do not murder. David murdered. Who did he disobey? He disobeyed God. And so, one of our key understandings to sin and to uh, repentance and confession is understanding this aspect that all sin is against God. Because if we don't realize this, we don't really take sin seriously. And it's easy if we just think it's against someone else just to brush it off, right? We can justify our actions. Or we can say, well, he probably deserved it anyway. Or we can say, well, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. Or sometimes we say, well, you know, I probably could have handled that situation better than what I did. And so we sin, and we say, eh, I could have probably done better. I didn't, I didn't really handle myself the way I should. But David says, all sin is against God. God says, this is what's right. This is what's wrong. You need to obey me. And if you do these things, you disobey God. So that sin becomes, or it is, sin against God. 
I was, uh, I was at work, and I was listening to a guy. This is just talking about just a way that we can just brush off sin. And uh, he's got some relative who always comes over, and they, like, you know, call, and they drop in. And so they stay for a long time, and he says, like, oh, yeah, 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 you know. And so um, he comes up with this plan. He devises this plan, and so he talks it over to his wife. He says, here's what we're going to do. Next time, I don't know who it is, like your sister, whatever, calls up. What we're going to do is I'm going to, and she's going to say, are you home? Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, oh, we're just getting ready to go. We're just like five minutes out the door. And I'm going to say, honey, are you ready to go? And you're going to say, yeah, five minutes and I'm ready to go. So they have it all set up like that, right? He's got the lie in place. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to deceive her. It's all set up like this. So he's like, I'm going to take this for a trial run. And so like two weeks later after the conversation, he gets a phone call. I don't, I'm not quite sure if he made it called himself. I'm not sure how he did it. Maybe for his cell phone to his home phone or whatever. But somehow or another, he rigged this up. So he talks to us like, oh, hi, Sandy. How are you doing? Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. We're just getting ready to go. Honey, are you ready to go yet? She's like, ready for what? What are you talking about? <laughs> Where are we going? <laughs> so the plan, the first dry run failed. <laughs> but here's my point. Is he going to take that serious as sin? He doesn't take it serious at all. He thinks it's just a joke. He's, I'm going to lie, and I'm going to deceive, and not only am I going to do it, but I'm going to bring my wife in, and I'm going to have her lie and deceive, right? But he doesn't take it serious because he doesn't take it as sin against God. But if we take this as sin against God, we see what we're doing, right? God said we're not to lie, and we're lying. And not only are we lying, but we're including our wife in it, in this case. So all sin is against God. And to go even deeper into this understanding that all sin is against God, think about Saul when he's on the way to persecute the church, right? He's on the way, he's gone out, he's going to persecute these people. There's this bright light and he's knocked down and he sees Jesus who says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's persecuting me is what Christ said. We have an overhead for this. There's a guy named Robert Candlish, lived in the 1800s. And uh, he wrote an entire book just in this one psalm alone. But he says this. He said, When the light from heaven shines about me, and I am smitten to the ground, the voice that I hear in my startled conscience is, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Did that voice indicate anything like indifference to Saul's persecution of the saints? Nay, the Lord made it persecution of himself. It is I whom thou persecuted, I alone. It is with me, with me alone, that thou hast to deal. Against me only hast thou sinned. It is not a question between thee and the victims of thy cruel bigotry. If it were, it might admit of explanation and excuse. But why persecutest thou me? When we sin against others, we are sinning against Jesus. It makes us take it. Seriously. Arrow number four. God is right in his judging us. God is right in his judging us. Verse four says you are justified in your words. You are blameless in your action. See, God is right and he's blameless when he judges us because we have sinned and we have sinned against God. We are guilty. It is his right. And David cries out, cast me not from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why did he say this? 
because God was just to do it. David was guilty. God had every right to cast him away from his presence. God had every right to remove his spirit from him because God is judge. And this is the point. This is the point that the world hates. The world can't stand anybody to judge them. The world can't stand to have anyone at all judge them. And so who is it who they uh, won't accept, right? They accept anybody who says this is truth, this is right, and this is wrong. And so you can expect that your own self, that your own flesh will balk at this as well. We are no different, right? God has saved us. That's the difference. And so we come to this situation where God is just and God is right and God has these commands and God has, these obey, has us uh, obey these and they're difficult sometimes. And so we're quick to justify our actions. We're quick to minimize what we have done. And we're slow to accept that God is right in judging us. We need to ask the Holy Spirit here especially to help us. To help us admit that God is right, that we are wrong, that he is the judge. And we need to remember this. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us before we've sinned so that after we've sinned, we can realize this and that we be part of our confession. Arrow number five, we have indwelling sin in us and we will sin all of our lives. That's just the fact. We have indwelling sin with us. We will sin all of our lives. Verse, seven, or verse 6 says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born in sin. We have this natural tendency to go on sinning. You can't deny it. God tells Noah the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's God's commentary on man. We're evil. Every evil, every intention is evil from our youth. Because of this, we really need to see that this forgiveness is from God. It's only God that can forgive us. It's only God that can free us. It's only God that can save us. And this is why David prays for God to uphold him with a willing spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit who works here. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and drives us to the cross. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us overcome it. It's the Holy Spirit who upholds us. The last arrow. Confession must be heartfelt to be true. It has to be heartfelt for it to be true. Verse 16 and 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, we cannot fool God. We cannot appease him by doing a religious type things and think that that's enough. It's only when confession is from the heart that it's pleasing to God. And we need to feel the bitterness of our sin. The Puritan Thomas Watson says this, We are to find as much bitterness in sin as we ever found sweetness in committing it. Surely David found more bitterness and repentance than he ever found comfort in Bathsheba. David grieved for his sin. He said, my sin is always before me. My bones are broken. This is that 
true heartfelt repentance. And it's from this broken heart that David confessed. It's from this broken heart that God forgave him. And it's from this broken heart that he gave him a clean heart, that he restored his joy. And it's from this same broken heart confession that God will do, do for us as well. So, that's the first part, our repentance. You still with me? Okay. What we're going to look at now, the rest of the part is going to go pretty quick, but we're going to look at God's forgiveness. And we're going to look at what God does. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful, and he is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, what God does when we ask him to forgive us is really two things. Number one is he removes the guilt that we have, and he gives us his righteousness. First of all, his removing the guilt. David confesses his sins, right? And he asked David to take away the sin's guilt. Or, I mean, he asked God. David asked God to take away sin's guilt. He asked God to take away sin's stain. He asked God to take away sin's filthiness. Listen to these verses. We have an overhead for this. Listen to all the references to washing and to wanting to be clean. Because see, what we have here is we've got David's prayer to God. And we can be certain that God answered David's prayer because we see in this first John, it says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He will forgive our sins. He will cleanse us from all righteousness. He says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. Did you hear that? See, when we feel, when we sin, right, we feel this. And we have this desire to be clean because we feel this dirt that comes with sin. We're made in the image of God. This is why we feel this, because we're made in the image of God, right? God is pure. And there is nothing impure about God. And God's spirit in us desires that. Nothing more than to be pure. And this feeling of this desire to get rid of sin's evilness is one of the proofs that we're Christian. It's one of the proofs that the Holy Spirit is working in our life, right? Because if he's not working in our life, right, we don't feel any guilt. We don't feel any remorse. We don't feel anything wrong with that. In fact, we see how many times in the world where the world brags about their sin. They don't feel anything bad about it, right? How many times have you heard someone, when they're talking about the week, and say, man, I was so wasted. It was such a great time, right? They don't even think twice about it. It's just part of their life, and they brag about these things. But we feel guilt. We feel this desire to be clean. And this is what God does. God removes that guilt from us. God not only removes the guilt, but he gives us his righteousness in its place. In order to be accepted by God, we need to be righteous. It's not enough to have guilt removed, but we need the presence of righteousness. And so God imputes our sin to Christ. And he imputes Christ's righteousness to us. Let 
I'm just taking a moment out because we've got like six minutes and I've got like 20 minutes worth of stuff. <laughs> I'm trying to feel, uh, because it's funny because I spent so much time in these arrows and just, you know, trying to go over. How do we confess? It's got to be from the heart, right? We've got to see our sins. We've got to, you know, take ownership of our sins. We have to do this stuff. But the most exciting part is the next part. And when I went through this part, I was just blown away at this part because I've heard this psalm and I've read this psalm before, but I never understood the full impact of what David was asking. So I'm going to just try to speed through this stuff and, and paraphrase some of this stuff. But here's the scoop. David's, he, not only he wants the absence of evil, right? But he wants the presence of good. Listen to what he asked for. He says, I want joy. I want gladness. I want rejoicing. I want restoration. I want fellowship with God. I want the Holy Spirit. Think about what he's asking for, right? Because think about what just happened. At the whole Uriah Bathsheba thing, he committed adultery. He committed murder. By his own confession, he's guilty. Everyone knows that he's guilty. And he's asking for joy. And he's asking for gladness. And he's asking for rejoicing. And he's asking for restoration. He's asking for fellowship with God. He's asking for the Holy Spirit. Right? In verse 11, he says, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit away from me, because he knows that God would be right to do it. Very next verse, very next verse, after saying, I know that God would be right, he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with the willing spirit. He's saying, I deserve death, but I want life instead. And not only life, but I want life more abundantly. I deserve to be cast away from your presence forever, but I want acceptance. And not acceptance alone, but I want you to uphold me with a willing spirit. He said, I deserve misery, but I want gladness instead. And not only gladness, but I want full-blown joy. What an audacious request this is, right? It's huge. It's big. It's, it's, it's bold. Charles Spurgeon says, he's requesting a great thing. He seeks joy for a sinful heart. Music for crushed bones. It is a preposterous prayer anywhere but the throne of God. It is a preposterous there, there at the throne of God, most of all, except for the cross where Jehovah Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Robert Candler says, when I realize the very utmost that wrath can inflict, I ask the very utmost that grace can give. Because David realizes one thing. David realizes that if God's forgiveness is to be complete, then the joy must be restored. The joy of salvation must be restored. Because if not, it's not complete forgiveness. It's not complete forgiveness if there is no joy that's restored. There's no halfway in forgiving for God. Robert Candler says God's forgiveness admits of no compromise, no transitional state, no process. It is from condemnation to salvation. It is from the terror of one to the joy of the other. It is one step. And David realizes this, and he wants joy. Isn't that amazing to think about? And you know what's more amazing is that God answered his prayer. God answers our prayer. If we don't have joy of his salvation, then it's not complete 
forgiveness. It has to be complete forgiveness. Why does he do this? Because of his mercy. Because of his compassion. Because of his love. How does he do it? Does he just forget David's sin? Does he just overlook it? Because the answer is no, right? There has to be justice. Justice has to be served. David said, this man should be killed. This man should restore not only one lamb, but four lambs. Four times what he took from this man is what he should be restored. We have this sense of justice. A sin has been committed, right? We must pay for it. And someone does pay for it. It's just not us. It's Jesus Christ who pays for it. And see, we sometimes have a hard time understanding this because we sin today, right? Well, Jesus died 2,000 years ago, and we're saying, well, he's paying for your sin. It doesn't make sense. But God's timing is different. God sees our sin. God sees our heartfelt repentance and confession. And he sees what Christ has done on the cross. And he sees it all happening. And he forgives us for our sins. And he confesses, he, he forgives us completely. And he restores to us the joy of his salvation. What did David do afterwards? Just that last piece. David praises God. And again, that's probably one of these understatements, right? You can imagine David's position and God forgiving him completely and him realizing this forgiveness and him being restored so he has a clean heart. He has a right spirit. He has joy. You know he's going to praise God. It's just going to happen automatically. And he praises God and he tells other people of it. And then he does those right spiritual offerings. And then he seeks to restore sinners to God. David prayed, cleanse me from my sin, create in me a clean heart, renew in me a right spirit, restore the joy of my salvation, and God did it. David, with a new heart, with the right spirit, with the joy of his salvation. And we too will do the same things. We're no different than David. This is a promise from God, right? If you Confess your sins. He is faithful. He is just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The band can come up. Verse 14 says, I will sing aloud of your righteousness. There will be singing after sinning. We will, after sorrow, there will be singing. What a dramatic change. Right? David starts out, my sin is always before my eyes. But now I am singing aloud of his righteousness. Charles Spurgeon says, The joy of pardon has a voice louder than the voice of sin. A great sinner pardon makes a great singer. Revelations tells us that we too will sing a new song. There is singing. There is joy. There is rejoicing. And it follows our repentance. It follows our confession. It follows Christ's forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you will restore unto us the joy of your salvation. Lord, we pray that you'll create in us a clean heart. Lord, we pray that you'll give us a, a, a your spirit, Lord. And we just, we just pray these things, Lord. And I just pray that as we leave, that will be the thought, Lord. 
that forgiveness, when it is complete, results in joy, Lord. Help us to understand these things about our confession and our repentance, Lord, so that we may go to you. But I know that I spent uh, too much time on that, Lord, and not as much time on the, on the outcome of your joy. But, Lord, let us just remember this, Lord, that we need to confess our sins to you. We remember nothing else, that we need to confess our sins to you. And, Lord, if we do, you will forgive our sins, Lord, that you'll create in us a clean heart, Lord, that you'll restore to us the joy of your salvation. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you.